Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, this is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Daisley. It's a podcast about making work better. If you're here to uh, find out more about work culture, please do sign up to the newsletter. It's got everything you need to help you navigate the changing world of work. And you can find that at eatsleepworkrepeat.com. Such an interesting time for work right now. And I'm not going to lie, it's sort of a confusing conundrum to know what content works and, and what I should be doing more of over the last week i've done a couple of interesting sessions with uh, different groups i facilitated the board of a ft250 company working out how to navigate the future of working like a lot of firms they reported that a lot of their workers want the best of both worlds they want to be free to work from home when they want and then enjoy the benefit of the office when they want and i chatted to a couple of people who were running an event last week and they said they'd come back into the office and they were loving the thrill of being around people so it's definitely a sort of theme that a lot of people are trying to get their head around to a large extent i actually believe that the the best of both worlds is a mirage a number of the remote only companies talk about this transition stage the the episode of the podcast a while ago where I, I chatted to Jason Freed from Basecamp and Deborah Ripple, who was then from Buffer, was an important lesson here. They, they said they used to have offices. And the problem was that we forget that an office has a network effect. So in the same way, there's no point joining a new social network unless it's got a critical mass of interesting people. An office only works when there are people in it. Buffer and Basecamp both used to have offices, but gave them up when no one came in. So this idea of the best of both worlds then is that you you want the chat of the office when it suits you and the productivity of homework when that suits. What does that look like in practice? How could it work? Well, how it could work is that a team announces we work together every Tuesday and they all collectively make the commute and sit together on that day. That could work. But the idea that I will swing by the office when I want and kind of like the bar in Cheers, a crowd is waiting for me. I think that's a thing of the past. If you want the best of both worlds without working out how you're going to reach it, I think it's it's a mirage. More and more firms will realise this, I think. They'll either demand everyone comes back and, and you know, potentially be labelled as dinosaurs in the competitive job market, or they'll work out a solution that's remote first, but with moments of interaction. To put it in context, Buffer and Basecamp both used to have offices, but they gave them up when no one came in. Begs the question, what do firms with big office space do? Well, some might repurpose them to have 
personal offices or cubicles that you could book, allowing individuals to, to have private space that they can, say, book for a month, book for a week. Pretty sure the occupancy of this will be pretty low, though, if you give people the choice of whether to come in or not. Time and time again, when you allow people to assess when they want to commute, it's going to be infrequent and less than you'd plan for. I'm not sure. I have no dog in this fight. It's not like I'm sort of insistent that one way will work or the other way will work. But I just struggle to see how, one, firms won't be forced to offer choice. And two, that doesn't mean that we end up with remote first for most works. Anyway, I'm interested in your opinions. Email me, voice note me. If you disagree, I promise I'll feature your opinions. I'm, I'm interested to try and get some perspective on this. Um, I do. There's a piece of research in the latest newsletter that's just gone out that says that the optimal is that people uh, can work remotely up to 15 hours a week and after that they start feeling isolated. Interesting. Anyway, on to today's episode. Today's interview is a discussion with uh, someone I've admired for a while, actually. It's a conversation with David D'Souza. He's a director at the CIPD. That's the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. They're the organisation that brings together those in the human resources. Incidentally, David's a fantastic Twitter follow. Anyone who follows David will know that he's wise and witty observer of the changes going on in work right now. Me and David talk about the choices available to firms. There's going to be some firms who are going to be famous for creating new cultures, and there's going to be others that, I guess, will be defined by what they react to. Overall, I think the lesson of the internet is that things that we enter into optimistically often go wrong. I am cautious about if we drift into too many of these things about the future of work without a clear plan. I was on a session with... David, a couple of weeks ago, I was on a sort of webinar and I was really struck with the sort of clarity of his ideas. The fact that he suggests that we should be sort of experimenting right now rather than making predictions. So here it is. Here's my discussion with David D'Souza from the CIPD. To kick off, I wonder if you could just introduce who you are and what you do. My name is David D'Souza. I am Membership Director of the CIPD. We're the Chartered Institute for Personal Development. So that means we are the professional body for HR and people development. So anyone looking after people in organisations. We've got about 150,000 members. And I suppose most pertinent to this conversation is our purpose is championing better working, working lives. So how can we improve the quality of work? How can we get more people with access to good work? Are kind of key areas that we lobby around and we try and influence organisations and practitioners to improve their practices. When this grand disruption happened, do people immediately reach out to the CIPD sort of asking for advice or do you proactively contact them? How does it generally work? There's a couple of areas. So uh, we reached out to government and government reached out to us. So that was around some of the policy implications and the employment law implications of what was happening. But we also created a a coronavirus hub that was accessible to anyone. And we know we've had more than 3 million people access that because it's important for us to make that information available to everyone. So we support our members. But actually recently, one of the things that we have found is that everyone's accessing that hub and different professional bodies, different governmental bodies pointing people in our direction to provide people with the support and the advice in what's a really impossibly tricky situation. Won't there be, to some extent, people looking for answers that aren't going to be there? What what would you put in a hub like that? A massive challenge has been, one, the pace of change. So people want to know what's happening next. But in fact, we don't even know what's happening now at some point. And some of that has been the pace of the government's moving. 
and that's not a, that's not a criticism at times, particularly around things like furlough. They're just incredibly difficult things that have never been done before. And the other thing is people want reassurance and certainty. And it's a time where it's very difficult to provide that. And it's certainly one of those times where people are looking for general advice or what to do in a situation. But quite often the challenge that their organization faces is unique. And so one of the things that we can also offer to our members is is that community where they can bounce ideas off each other and try and find a different way of solving things. As we're sort of sitting here, I guess, you know, furloughing is the short-term challenge and, and working out more immediately how some degree of returning to work will happen. Do you personally have a perspective of what's going to come next? A lot of organisations, I spoke again to another organisation today, very traditional packaged goods business who said, right, maybe we need to just pay down our Uh, property that we've got in central London and shift to something else. And so firms are definitely projecting into the medium term. Do you have a perspective of whether there is going to be a big disruption, whether this is going to represent a shift to remote work for a lot of organisations? It it will definitely represent a shift to remote work for a lot of organisations. Part of that is because they're now invested in the infrastructure to do it. Um, second part of that will be that this is an extended disruption. So we can assume that we're going to have months more where actually the norm isn't for some people working uh, from the office, for those who are office-based. So I think people will form different habits and routines uh, and want to kind of stick to them. So I, I, it is a long-term shift. I think part of the challenge is how far does that shift go? What's the motivation for that shift? So is it an enlightened view of how people work and where they get value or is it just it's too difficult to do it from an office at the moment and then some of that stuff sticks. And I think now is a really good time. You mentioned predictions for organizations to be possibly predicting less, but running scenarios really rapidly. So if things change in this direction, what are we going to do? What are the overall principles we're working to here? Um, Because I think we've seen historically, and you'll know this almost better than anyone, you get a really different result if you change your working practices intentionally and for the right reasons to doing it when it's driven by cost management or some other motivator in the background. And I think... Go on, explain, explain. (laughs) So, you know, for years, the challenge around remote working and in fact, things like open plan offices has been whether you're genuinely focused on how do you equip people to be productive and how do you equip people to make a difference or are you doing it because you can drive down real estate costs? Now, we're in a position now where lots of facilities managers, workplace experts will be looking at essentially uh, workplaces that aren't being fully utilized and thinking that actually people can manage to work in a different way. That provides a saving to businesses in, in very challenging times. So there's a reality that I'm not denying that. But also, we know that there's been a difference in impact between organizations that have been really enlightened in this space and have said actually look we trust our people enough to work remotely to deliver results effectively and to know as adults the best way of them working and delivering versus the organizations that have done it driven by cost have people working from home but still attempt to micromanage them still attempt to basically duplicate the office experience there. My favorite is that I remember chatting to one organization and they'd moved people to working from home, but they had explicitly sent them a message saying you cannot open the dishwasher on work time. Um, Yeah, and, and you think, you know, culturally, that is an incredibly different message and has an incredibly different result to actually, look, we're equipping you to work wherever you need to get your best work done. 
And I think if organizations can harness the opportunity to rethink the way they do work, that is far more effective than just being driven to a different way of doing pretty formulaic work in the same way. And and do you end up being asked for good examples of firms doing it well, or do you have a perspective on firms who've maybe made these transitions intentionally? Where firms have done it well, they're quite often not the, and, and uh, I've spoken to you about this prior, they're quite often not the poster children for it. So I think you have some organisations such as Basecamp, and, it, and it's been the way that they operate for a, for a long time. Um, and they have got that concept of uh, asynchronous working and the principles that sit behind that down to a kind of fine tee. And they are really intentional about the way they do it. But then you've also had a whole host of organizations that have had to shift now. I know some of the large-scale media organizations are now producing papers for the first time or producing kind of news for the first time with barely anyone in their headquarters. Mm. That's a fundamental change for something that we always see kind of anchored around the printing press historically and then around those kind of large media centers and, and they've changed it entirely you know you've got some of the larger publications with just two or three people in the office and they're still managed to get that content out i think there's a maturity to that but if you had bad managers and you had a bad culture before all you've done is you've just carried that across and i think that's part of the challenge that we know that so many people experience their organization primarily through their direct management structure and if you were working for someone with low trust, low capability beforehand, they haven't got any smarter just because there's a pandemic on. What's really interesting for me is that I think to a greater or lesser extent, culture between businesses before was often not as differentiated as firms tried to make out. That you would you could go from one firm in a sector to another firm in the sector. And there might be some slight differences in their values and their approaches to certain things. You you could very easily make a transition from Unilever to Procter & Gamble to, to Nestle and you know broadly what the expectation is going to be and I do think that there is going to be a fundamental change in that now because I suspect if Glassdoor lives up to what it could be capable of and, and being sort of a full review site of people's experience there are definitely going to be some organisations to my mind that are going to take this challenge of remote work and, as you've mentioned there, sort of take up some of the difficult parts like working asynchronously and make them work. And there will be others who are summoning people to 30 hours of Microsoft Teams meetings a a week. And the experience can be, I I would expect, in the same sector, could be fundamentally different. Do do you have a perspective on that? Yeah, and I I think there are some professional services that have been you know, we've seen some significant changes, I think, from some of the legal firms almost immediately. I think if you look at a sector like insurance, that's traditionally been based around really big corporate headquarters, I think there's an absolute opportunity for organizations to differentiate themselves in terms of the experience of their people. You've seen some organizations come out very overtly and say, actually, no one's coming back to the office this year. We'll always continue to work in a different way. It makes such a difference to people. It really does if they have that flexibility of working. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone wants to work from home. We've done some work recently that was really interesting, actually, is it kind of gave an insight into the amount of people who are dying to get back into the office, just absolutely keen to get back in. But for those who do want flexibility, whether that's for lifestyle or work style, it would make a huge difference going forward. There are two plausible scenarios, and they may kind of play out at the same time. One of which is organizations really taking a lead on this and differentiating their proposition and becoming really well known for it. So you work in a traditional sector, but that's the organization that you want to work for because of the way they treat you, because of the opportunity they give you. 
The other challenge actually is organizations just facing pure cost challenges at the moment and that driving a different type of behavior. So I like to think there are enough leadership teams that will take the opportunity in this challenge rather than just retreat to, as you say, a variant of what they did before. Let's just shift everything to 30 hours plus of conversations on teams and pretend that we've, you know, got this new way of working licked and that we're now experts. Cause I think, uh, it's, it's interesting the language that I've had some CEOs use. You know, we've transitioned our work really well to remote. Well, that's interesting. What does that mean? Does that mean that you found opportunities in that? Does that mean you found a new way of working? Or does that just mean that instead of us all sitting in a room together, we're all staring at a screen together? There seem to be a few things that could potentially, like you say, slip between the cracks. Obviously, the, the first is that we may well have got the work done, but is there any team cohesion? And what's does team cohesion look like if some workers are coming into the office one day a week and if maybe we don't have an office in the form that we used to have before where it's it's effectively a co-working space so what does team cohesion look like there and the second thing that's of intrigue to me is that we often underestimate the power of of weak ties and often innovation and creativity and and ingenuity comes not from the strong ties that we have with our direct manager and with the management board, but with the weak ties of people in different departments, people we see occasionally, people we can sort of riff off. Both of those things seem to be potentially what we might lose in the short term while we're evaluating the fact that the work is being done. But they should be big differentiators in the long term, I would guess. Yeah, and uh, there's some really famous case studies over the years. So obviously, you know, the Pixar headquarters as envisioned by Steve Jobs and that concept of those serendipitous moments where people meet that, that then drive creativity in organizations. And I think one of the things that is a really interesting thing to think about as organizations move to working remotely is how do you ensure that actually we don't become even more siloed than before? Because theoretically, you have the ability to reach out to colleagues more easily than you've ever done because you don't have that geographical factor it's being done digitally. But to what extent are you going to think of people to include? How intentional do you need to be about saying, actually, this project team isn't diverse enough? Or maybe there's someone who isn't directly aligned to this work, but have a really interesting perspective on it. And if organizations don't think like that, then actually, you know, given some of the other challenges that we're facing societally, you're looking to potentially amplify both the same voices that we've always heard from, but the same challenges that we've always had. So we know that, and there's two men speaking on this podcast, we know that men tend to speak more in meetings. We know that actually men tend to get uh, promoted more rapidly, and there's that, that kind of overt piece to it in terms of be it politics or be it voice within organizations, and certainly confidence. How do you solve for some of those things when people are working remotely? It's, it's a really fundamental challenge, and it's something that could go missed if not. Now, there's a flip side which is that if you break down some of the informal networks that basically amounted to an old boys club, there's a possibility, actually, that this is going to give people more equal voice and access to voice. But I think CEOs and leaders and organizations need to find ways to encourage that and say, look, we've got an opportunity here to open up voice in a completely different way across organizations, open up contribution, and to your point, open up creativity and innovation at the same time because they're, they're not separate concepts. It, it feels to me that to some extent that organizations may well pat themselves on the back for getting through the immediate existential threat, you know, and, and shout out, you know, I know organizations that had to equip their whole workforce with laptops overnight and, and had to set up this remote working infrastructure. So it was no mean feat. But 
actually, when we project forward, the idea, what will recruitment look like in a semi-remote world? Um, what will onboarding of new team members feel like when there's no one in the office? What will, you know, the, the, the new annual intake of beginner level workers, what will that look like when you've got no one around? And, and it seems like some of the pressing but less urgent topics might get less attention than the things that were effectively, you know, representing the, the business was under threat. I couldn't agree more. I think, first of all, to get through the existential threat, to enable your, your kind of workforce to be able to work in a different way, has been such a large challenge for organisations. I can understand people being fatigued and organisations don't get tired, people do. Right. So if you've been guiding, leading or arranging for your, your workforce to be working in that way, I can understand people at this point, together with the overwhelming external environment, just being tired. But actually, when you do start thinking about some of the questions that you've raised, which is, what's it like to start at an organization and never have been in the same room as someone? Mm. And there, there are organizations that will say, oh, we've done this in the past and it works. But have you done it for people in that industry, in that sector? There's a difference between it being possible and it being suitable. And I think that's a really interesting challenge as we go on. So I can understand that someone listening to this might be thinking, look, we've, we've only just managed to get everyone set up with the right kit. And now you want to start talking about diversity of voice within organizations or diversity of hiring within organizations. And I can understand people being fatigued, but that's the next set of challenges. But it's also the next set of opportunities. I wonder if you've got a perspective on this. So one of the things that I feel, I, I for a long time worked at Twitter, and probably the experience of the internet, the lesson that we can learn from the internet over the last few years is that often through screens, we while we can create a whole load of vivid connections with people and, and certainly we can, we can find people who are on our side. But also um, there's definitely been a, a, an empathy gap. There's been... We've, we've often struggled to try and side with the people who find themselves in opposition to us. And I, I do wonder if we are moving to a world that is a degree more isolated, that, uh, that maybe doesn't have the same human contact, if over time that won't lead to some of the challenges that have been experienced in online communities being experienced in workplace communities. And I, I just wonder if we're going to, we, we've already seen that identity plays a part in organizations that generally younger workers are more likely to be remain. They're less likely to be against the European Union, older workers just to, to, generalized to an extent, can find themselves having uh, different perspectives and it can lead to sort of workplace enmity. You, you do witness that a little. I just wonder, as we transition into this world where screens are our default setting for engaging with people, whether there are pitfalls ahead. Without going into too much detail on Twitter, which you have a, a, a far greater insight uh, into than I am, I, I think there's a, some really interesting parallels. So we, we know that people connect not only with an organisation, but they connect with people within an organisation and certain people. So you, you form social groups within that. We also know that technology has invited, um, from the way that we consume content, things that generate an emotional reaction. So whether that's, you know, really good news or really bad news, but it doesn't really suit the stuff in the middle. Yeah, we always, there's a sense of drama that we know attracts people to content. And that's what you see in the well-crafted headlines that you see across the web these days. Mm. That's how echo chambers uh, kind of fill themselves. I identify with that content and it's put across in a persuasive and emotive manner. I think the challenge for organizations, and I remember chatting to the FT actually a couple of years back around WhatsApp. 
So as people started to use WhatsApp, people formed groups outside of the workplace mm. and you get some quite accelerated, quite at times bitter conversations going on, as well as really supportive ones. So it's probably not, again, it, you know, it suits either I've got a really interesting piece of gossip or I've had a really bad day or, you know, I've had a really good day and you need to hear about this. All of the stuff that happens in the middle, the the kind of the less interesting human experience, but what actually is most of human experience can get lost. And I think organizations could easily find themselves in a position where things are siloed or things have gone incredibly sour between different teams and no one can quite pinpoint the reason. And the reason will be because you have technology magnifying and accelerating some of the things that might otherwise have happened. And there's no mirror really being held up to that. So I think how we interact online, we know is fundamentally different to how we interact in person. We've seen through some of Facebook's experimentation in the past, uh, not official, unfortunately, but you can impact people's sentiment by impacting the information that they're given and they're served. How that works when, as you say, we're all staring at screens trying to understand the experience that other people are happening without connecting is really tricky to understand. Now, we have got some templates in terms of organizations that have done this for a long time. So that's a really healthy thing for us to learn from. But we've also, if you look closely at some of those organizations, they don't necessarily have a track record that's brilliant in some of the aspects that you would want to see in an inclusive workplace. So I think that's the challenge, that some of the organizations that say it's possible because we've always done this aren't necessarily the organizations you might want to be like. I think this is going to be an, an interesting period that we're going through now because most certainly a lot of us, when we're in a situation where we want to assert control or to bring back order, we often return to the things that we used to do. I've got no doubt there'll be a lot of bosses, chief execs who are thinking, right, we need to bring everyone back into the office. We need to... to get school back together in the in the way it used to be. Now, clearly, a lot of workers are going to feel, okay, well, actually, I enjoyed the autonomy that I got through this change, and I'm going to elect to go somewhere else. So I think the idea that we can summon the past back is a flawed piece of logic. We might summon the, the people back who want to go to these things. But similarly, going to a completely remote world, like you say, there's going to be so many things that can potentially go wrong there as well. And and the danger, of course, is that we will become nostalgic about, ah, oh, well, this never used to happen in the old world, not recognizing the fact that the old world has sort of been taken from us to a, a small extent. Is there anything that you're particularly optimistic about going forwards? Yeah, I, I think the technology has enabled us, or the recent events have enabled us to throw things up in the air. And I think we then have some autonomy as to how they come down. And I think the economy will drive some of that, but most organizations will have some kind of choice. So I am really optimistic, actually, that some of the things that work isn't working for many, many people. And you can pick up just about any survey, go on our website, and you'll see the, the stats around that. More people want good work, and they want better quality work. Part of that, actually, is flexibility. We have the ability and the agency, I think, to, to really shape things in a different way. And I also think that whilst we probably dwell on some of the negative or downsides of things, there is the opportunity to get the best of both worlds here, to think, actually, about what it's like when you bring people together physically, but actually how much of people's work doesn't require that. And if we can do both of those things in a quite graceful, reflective way, then actually this could be an incredible shift in the way that people experience work, in the quality of work, but also the quality of output for organizations, because they're not mutually exclusive things. It's not a, do you want a good employee experience or do you want results? It's actually, how do you support your people to do their best work is the core question within this. I am optimistic and wary at the same time. The very things that cause me to be wary some of the things that actually, if we're smart about and we attempt to mitigate, 
could leave us in a really strong position going forward. I agree. And, and I think most organisations will pat themselves on the back on, of what they've accomplished in the last 12 weeks when procrastination and equivocation were sort of removed as options. And it just demonstrates, you know, that when we bias for action, we can get a lot done. So there's reasons to be optimistic. But yeah, I do end up believing that there is going to be, it's going to be a stratified world where some companies really get this right. And a lot try to wind the clock back to nostalgic version of uh, things that weren't necessarily there. Someone said to me recently, I want it back to we're all in the office and everyone chatting to each other. And I thought I could very easily show you probably a photograph of their office from four months ago where these three quarters of the office sitting with headphones on and and not chatting. But unfortunately, we sort of nostalgize when it comes to we remember the best Thursday ever where there was loads of interaction going on rather than remembering the reality of what happened, I think. Yeah, work was just one giant uh, party and cake eating in contact. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I mean, one of the hardest conversations I've had to have with my teams is that the environment they go back to, certainly initially, if we do decide to bring people back in the kind of medium to longer term, will be completely alien. It won't be what they've missed. That's just not available. So if that's the case and we have to, you know, be different with each other, then I think hopefully one will value that human connection more in a different way. And we won't all sit with our earphones on, but we'll, you know, properly segment our work in different ways and work out what we can do from home and we can really crack through. But if we're bringing people together, we bring them together properly and we cherish that time together and we value that time together. But more importantly, we make that time together productive. More with David after this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
I mean, look, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of organizations. I chatted to someone yesterday, phoned me yesterday. He said, our bosses, I mean, like, they're, they're in chaos. He said, our boss is saying every week, we want everyone back. We want everyone back. Bring them back. And the bosses want them all back at work today. Now, I don't think that has happened, but it's just an illustration that, you know, there's going to be generations of bosses who are saying, look, you know, we, we want the, the world of 2019 to come back because we could understand 2019. And of course, just it's, it's not a realistic solution to what we're in the middle of. No, well, if you've been leading people for 30, 40 years, right, and all of that has been in a physical environment, you want to feel confident at the moment that you are doing the level best you can for your organization. And what that intuitively looks like to you is everyone being in front of me so I can go talk to that person and tell them what to do and that person and tell them what to do and get that feeling of control back because we've all lost that and that's a really human thing to want to keep or to want to return to. So even if we can't return to the environment, I want to return to that sense of control and that's both unhealthy and healthy at the same time. It's very human and there's nothing wrong with being human but we just need to understand why that's the right way of going about work. Thank you to David D'Souza. As I said, he's a fantastic follow on Twitter. You should definitely sign up to him there. If you actually are on Twitter, I've got a Twitter list of some of the best people to follow in the world of predicting the future of work. I listed that on my newsletter a couple of weeks ago, but I've put it in the show notes here if you follow that. And on Twitter, if you do use Twitter, you can swipe between lists so you can sort of get an occasional update of what you've missed. Thank you so much to David D'Souza for chatting to me. Really keen to hear your experience of how work is transforming before your eyes. So do get in touch. I've been Bruce Aisley. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.